0: Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 324, Mars Audio Log number 7. I'm Gary Jordan. I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, astronauts, all to let you know what's going on in the world of human spaceflight and more. We're back with another audio log from the Chapia crew. CHAPIA, or Crew Health and Performance Exploration Analog, is a year-long analog mission in a habitat right here on Earth that is simulating very closely what it would be like to live on Mars. We're lucky enough to have monthly check-ins with the crew. Commander Kelly Haston, Flight Engineer Ross Brockwell, Medical Officer Nathan Jones, and Science Officer Anka Salariu. To meet the needs of fitting in with this analog and simulating significant communication delays between Earth and Mars that prohibit us from having a live conversation, the crew is recording an audio log based off the questions that we draft for them. On this episode, we play the recording on their seventh month in the habitat, which is here at the NASA Johnson Space Center and was recorded in January of 2024. We'll also be bringing in some special guests to learn even more about CHAPIA. This month is on another angle of scientific research, immunology and virology. A lot of these things that we've been talking about on CHAPIA, long spacewalks dealing with problems, isolation and confinement, can have stressors on the human body that may affect an astronaut's immune system. Returning to the podcast to discuss immunology is Dr. Brian Crucian, who we had on about five and a half years ago to talk about one of the hazards of human spaceflight, diving deeper into the hostile and closed environments, particularly from an immunology perspective. We're also welcoming Dr. Satish Mehta to the podcast, virologist here at the Johnson Space Center, who has spent the past two decades characterizing the clinical risks associated with virus reactivation in astronauts during spaceflight. The two are working together on the immunology and virology investigation of CHAPIA. So with that, let's learn from the CHAPIA crew on how they're doing, and from Brian and Satish on the CHAPIA immunology and virology. Let's get into it.
1: Hi, right, second county. Mark, it we have a
0: Alright, first is Chapia mission commander Kelly Haston.
2: Hi, my name is Kelly Haston. I'm the commander of Chapia One, a one-year Mars analog mission out of Johnson Space Center in Houston. So far on our mission, I've reported monthly to this audio log that we're doing great. And the really good news is we continue to really do great. Um, I worry that that's boring to people, but I actually think that that us feeling relatively happy and really just moving along well in the mission is such a good sign and such a delight for me that I can't help but but report it to you all. So I I feel like that's really great. Um, And again, I just can't commend how how much uh, everyone on this mission, both the crew and also the people that support us, just continue to um, you know, bring their energy and their best self to our efforts because we are doing a lot of things over and over again. And you know, that's, that's repetitive stuff can wear people down, but I really see an energy here that's just so impressive. And, and I, just, I just love it. So um, overall, we are solid, strong, happy, and moving right along in this mission. So in the last month, we have had some exciting highlights happen um, and and they've been really nice. So as we neared the end of the holiday season, we actually hit our 50% point um, exactly. So that was on December 31st, which coincided with New Year's Eve, which was very nice. So we were able to celebrate both the new year and also our, our completion of 50% of our mission. Um, that was such a great feeling um, and I will put it in terms of some of the activities I do outside of this uh, mission, which is in my spare time, um, when I'm not being a stem cell biologist, I, I like to do ultra running and I run on the trails and I do sometimes races and sometimes just running with my friends for really long stretches like 50 or 100 miles. and. Uh, you know those are long stretches, especially the races when you're going against a time, uh, time limit, and you have to make aid stations at a certain time. And one of my really good friends at home, Stan, he sent out, um, he sent me this really cool PDF that showed me where I am relative, like what aid station I'm at relative to a bunch of the different races that I've either done or would like to do in my life. Um, and that was just a wonderful thing because it really made me it reminded me. Then in a hundred mile race, you often don't even think about the race really starting or like, you know, the hard part getting there until after the halfway point. And so I really felt like that when we hit 50 percent. It was like, wow, look at that. Like, we're really only at the point where the race is getting started, you know, where the really tough stuff happens. And I'm not saying that it hasn't been tough and we haven't had our challenges in our first six months. But of course, the second half is You know, happily on the way home on the downhill, but it's also still going to be tough, right? Because now we're starting to look forward to actually finishing and completing and and all all that that entails, including getting back to our family. So I would say that 50% was huge to hit that. And really soon after that, we also hit 200 days. Uh, on January 11th. And 200 days was also just a, a delightful figure. So NASA has, I think traditionally on the ISS had pretty big celebrations around 100 days. And so 100, 100 day increments are very important and you know start to mark you towards your full year. And so hitting 200 was, was really just a delightful sort of milestone for the crew as well. Um, and so I think that those two milestones really dominated the last month for me. Um, we were also finishing up a really nice holiday season where we celebrated and, and really tried to mark like some of the things that people do with their families so that we didn't miss our families as much and so forth. But, but those were the real key, uh, points, I would say. Um, and, and just, I can't say how happy I am that we're, you know, at this point in the mission and feeling strong and, and content and and really just, you know, doing so well. Um, but one of the things that does actually come up with that sort of idea of, you know, here you are at the halfway point, like what are the things that you miss about Earth and that you would suggest for future missions? And so I have two, both are sort of one is more on the personal side and one is actually something that would accommodate a lot of different scenarios within the mission. So the first is that talking to your family, talking in quotes because we don't talk directly to anyone um, on our in our family or friends, um, that is critical in your life, right? You know, maintaining your contacts, talking to the people that you love, taking care of them, helping them, having them help you. So right now we're using audio, video, and um, email and all of those are limited for size. So there is uh, some sort of time constraints on how much you can actually send to people, how much content you can send to people. Um, I think that something in the future as the technology gets better, um, for an actual Mars, Mars mission, mission that would be amazing is either a hologram or, um, virtual reality setting where your people can tape something for you and then you're actually sitting with more of a 3D representation or at least visually seeing that person in 3D. Um, it's a little bit less, uh, Limiting or, or sort of um, a barrier than the, the sort of looking at this computer screen. And so I think that would be a really exciting thing to have for future missions where people are actually away for even longer than a year, you know, several years undoubtedly when they go to Mars and, and have to actually, and are going to be on the Martian surface. So personally, I think a way for your family to feel more, uh, you to feel more, even more attached to your family and friends is critical. Um, and would be amazing. Um, the second thing is a very robust, um, basically limb system or something that you can actually have you know, a, a huge amount of data uh, in a system that's easily accessible and easily searchable. So I would say right now we have sort of a baseline of that between the things that the crew brought in personally and the things that NASA has provided for us for the mission. But I think that a really extensive system where there's a lot of references, a lot of ways for the people, the scientists and the astronauts on the mission to look up anything that they think of because you don't have an internet. So you need a lot of information at your fingertips for, you know, process, like for for the experiments and for the things that you need to know for the mission itself, but also personally. So as an example, as a scientist, I like to read papers, but we're so used to being able to look up Additional information once you read a paper, so you get inspired to be like, oh, I want to look at this part of this paper, and in here, that's pretty impossible in, in a quick way. And even to do that, you have to use data, you know, sort of data uh, size to actually get your your partner or your so your uh, friend to send you something to follow up and it sort of blocks your flow as well. Cause you're probably thinking about it in the moment. And then by the time you move on to something else and like a day later, get, get something back from them, it's, you know, kind of gone. So I would say um, a robust system of, you know, resources around information is a critical thing, almost like a computer like on Star Trek where you can query things and you can do it in a way that's interactive and and so forth. So that would be something that I think is definitely doable and uh, would would definitely be, you know, in the future, like make a huge difference for the crew um, in terms of their capability of doing both personal and uh, mission-oriented research. Um, Another question we do get and we talk about a lot is how this experience of living in living and working in chapia for a year um, with this isolation and with the, the reliance on three other people um, is, is going to impact future, your future working and, and living. You know, I think that that's, a, and in particular what your next job will look like. And I confess that it gives me a lot of thoughts around efficiency about how to pick a job where I know that we're making the best choices for the money being spent on the task at hand or the the research at hand. So I think a lot about that. I also think about how to live my life um, in a a way that is going to make the most of resources and not hopefully siphon off resources. So, you know, we've grown a little bit of our own food in here. I do a little bit of that at home. I'm pretty excited to do more of that. and, and maybe broaden the scope of that a little bit. I also think a lot about just how um, my future job will impact the planet and space exploration and, and other huge issues that are gonna be coming at us in the coming years. And so I think that, that this experience in here has really inspired me to look deeper into that. Um, but I don't think that I'll choose to live with my colleagues in the future the way I am now, despite the fact that we're working out pretty well. <laughs> Uh, we do also get a chance to talk to a lot of school kids. And, and by talk, I mean, you know, uh, send messages or, or answer questions to to different uh, programs. And so I would say we've given a fair bit of advice to different individuals um, about how, what to study. So one question could be like, what should the Artemis generation that's coming through high school right now, um, really look at what courses should they take? And I would say that one of the Key things is still to always, you know, go after what you're interested in. Don't just try to force yourself into, you know, the hole that you think is going to be most appropriate, but find that thing you're passionate about. But then if possible, be as broad as possible around it. And an idea of that is, you know, if you want to be a biologist, have some coding skills or have some engineering, other types of engineering skills, because those will combine to give a richer experience in the area that you're an expert. Um, I think engineering in general is just uh, such a, a thoughtful process, uh, you know, thought, thought process sort of methodology, how to think in you know, procedures and sort of go through a logical progression of how best to do things is really helpful. So I would say that overall, there's just uh, a lot there where you can combine things. And I was reading uh, an astrobiology textbook in here, and actually one of the people in the book really did point that out. That breadth is going to actually, you know, really help you in these fields where you have so much multi, multifaceted, multifunctionality, multi, you know, sort of uh, multi themes, and and you're going to bring them all together because there's nothing in here that's just one specialty. So I would say. Um, while still becoming good at one thing and, and being valuable for that, you want to have some breadth. Um, and definitely, you know, engineering will really help you if you're interested in space travel uh, or space exploration. Um, in the next month, we have some cool stuff coming up. We're definitely going to be engaging a little bit with some remote control uh, items that we get to interact with, and we always like those missions a great deal. Um, and then we're also, you know, gonna continue and, and again this is sort of like my mantra now, but we will continue to do a lot of the same things that we've done before, and we'll continue to try to do them to our best of our ability. So we'll continue to be the strong, you know, collaborative unit that we've grown into and, and that's pretty exciting as we move through the second, you know, the beginning of the second portion of this mission as always i thank you everyone for their interest and i hope you have a really good day I'm wishing you the best possible day from from analog mars
0: all right, that was uh, Commander Kelly Haston kicking us off. Uh, really interesting analogy. She talked about being past that halfway point and relating it to her own experiences uh, running ultra marathons. And of course, those repetitive tasks are going to keep coming up, but uh, a wonderful attitude that Kelly and I'm sure the rest of the crew are going to bring um, to uh, crossing this major milestone. You know, it's interesting, I guess, uh, you know, we know that we, uh, they are not having direct conversations with their family, or nor with us, right? That's why we're doing these audio logs. Uh, There's not really that two-way capability. But the interesting uh, suggestion of having a VR capability to talk with others and really immerse yourself and surround yourself, not by the barrier of just a flat screen, is certainly something that I found uh, particularly interesting in that suggestion, uh, now six months into the mission. Um, And also that ability uh, to have more information accessible right there on location. Of course, uh, we've heard from the crew about their uh, challenges with the internet access and capability, even just that file transfer that they've talked about um, sometimes taking a long time to transfer files, simulating uh, the deep space network constraints of sending large files uh, really across the solar system uh, for a mission like this. But to have more data readily accessible uh, is certainly something that I thought was very interesting as well. Her appreciation towards efficiency I thought was interesting as well. Um, it's something that's true, I guess, for a Chapia mission, but to say that it's going to be applied in her own life I found fascinating, but then also not only that, that level of efficiency in doing stuff uh, lean, but an appreciation for that impact on the world and uh, an appreciation of Earth uh, and taking care of the planet was, I thought, uh, uh, very interesting. Of course, I'm sure many of our listeners are thinking, what would it take for me to be a, a Chapia crew member or an astronaut? Uh, and what Kelly said is true and consistent with, with what we find with many of the astronauts that we talk to on this podcast. Find something you're passionate about, um, not just something that you think will fit the mold of what an astronaut is. Uh, because Kelly and many of the astronauts, when they come and talk and try to inspire people, are truly passionate about what they do. Uh, and But something that has a broad application and a broad sweep of skills, you're finding this uh, being an astronaut, being a Chapia crew member, you need to do a lot of different things. And as good as you are into your focus, having that broad sweep of application is something that I think is important. Really, if you're an astronaut, or really for any career that I think that you would have, uh, particularly here at NASA uh, or anything in in space flight. Uh, wonderful hearing from Kelly. That was a w- excellent way to kick us off. But now let's go to Chapia mission flight engineer Ross Brockwell.
3: Hello, this is Ross Brockwell, flight engineer for Chappia Mission One. Some questions for Houston, we have a podcast in January of 2024. So how's everything going? It's uh, still going great, still having fun, time is still flying. Uh, Sometimes it's kind of a mix of slow moments, slow days, but um, fast weeks. So time overall is flying, it's a lot like life back on Earth. Tell us about some of the highlights of the activities and tests of the last month. So uh, New Year's was really fun. I think we talked about that a little bit before. Um, It was a good moment for us halfway through the mission. Um, It was uh, really neat to kind of imagine what it would really be like someday for the first group of humans to be on the other side of the sun. Um, Mission Day 200 was also a neat milestone. So now more than halfway through, what do I miss about Earth that would be important and possible to develop for Mars? Well, I definitely miss, uh, sunlight, natural light. I miss a view. I miss, uh, you know, open movement. I miss running a lot. Um, I miss vegetation and water, water features. Uh, and it's really kind of been fun to think about how to incorporate some of those things into a habitat design um, on, on Mars. It would be interesting to do things with kind of a multi-purpose angle. Uh, water, for example, can be used to shield from radiation. So it's kind of fun to think about maybe having a portion of the habitat with a water reservoir above you, you know, maybe it's sealed from uh, the rest of the habitat just as a contingency, but it would have some amount of natural light coming through and also some radiation protection um, and also be a a water source, um, you know, with some, some pressure from the elevation, so some useful hydrostatic pressure. So things like that are fun. It's fun to think about, um, Building into the Martian landscape and having the protection, but also a bit more open space, having some vegetation and water, and in, in your um, in the habitat that's open to you would be pretty neat. Um, a lot of positive, practical reasons, but also aesthetic and psychological bonuses. Um, I've been thinking about animals too. I you know miss kind of animals and pets and funny to wonder how a dog or a cat would do in one-third gravity. Uh, do I think living in Chapea will influence the way I interact with people in my work, uh, in my next job or my life? Um, yeah, definitely. I think it's, can easily say this experience will have a big impact on the rest of my life. Um, some parts of it are, are as I expected and as I'd hoped, um, some of the challenges Will be very good experiences when this is over. I um, still have several months to go, so I'm sure there'll be more. Um, a lot of the things you know, you you already kind of know, but doing something like this reinforces it, um, highlights things, and teaches you some of the nuance about um, you know how to appreciate the little things uh, while you remember the big picture. Uh, you can do both; they can reinforce each other, and how important it is to work as a team to appreciate, um, build on each other's strengths and each other's quirks, um, also how being sure the fundamentals are covered affords you the time and energy to explore, uh, be creative, try new things, have fun, um, and, you know, time flies, it's certainly reinforcing that, kind of, no matter what your circumstances it tends to, if you are... Are working towards something uh, and it's around your interest and time certainly flies but also just to always try to have fun and try to continuously learn. For the Artemis generation, what are my suggestions for courses students should take in high school? I think a well-rounded education is extremely important. Um, math and science are fundamental, so I would definitely encourage people not to shy away from them. I think anyone can learn anything, especially with an insightful and patient teacher, and math and science can underpin so many other things that it's critical to have a, a baseline exposure to them. Um, but also... Just to read as much as you can. Um, I think that systems engineering and ecology are going to be very important in the future. And, you know, they are now, of course, but I think studying them at a young age will help you approach the things you work on in your life with a certain systemic understanding, an ecological understanding that I think is critical and sadly is absent from a lot of things we do. Um, in human endeavor, but I think that they would be good for people to study. I also think languages are good for people to study um, for the way your brain works, the way you understand things, but obviously also for culture and travel and international cooperation um, and just confidence and perspective. I would say that, that everyone young should study multiple languages if they can too what's coming up in the next month so we have a drone and rover mission coming up which they're always awesome um, they're fun um, I'm going to try to finish a couple of the training things I've got on my plate that I'm looking forward to i got a bunch of books to read uh, we've been talking recently about the last of us video game we're going to kind of play as a group it's super fun to do that try and solve the puzzles and experience it it's a pretty, uh, pretty good game pretty fun to play that way so I'm looking forward to that Um, We've got a 3D print project going on that's interesting. It's coming together. I'm sure there'll be some new EVA challenges to face that will be interesting Uh, and a couple of mission milestones coming up um, here in the second half. So I'm looking forward to all of that. So thanks again and looking forward to next month's questions.
0: Again, that was Ross Brockwell, flight engineer. Uh, Ross's theme, I guess, for uh, some of the things that he's thinking about is definitely around nature, some of the things missing being the sunlight and outdoors. And I loved his suggestions for how to improve the habitat, thinking about introducing nature into the habitat uh, with you know, definitely some aesthetic things, but the practical perspective of using water not only as radiation shielding, but I don't know if you've ever been to an aquarium and walked into one of the tunnels where the aquarium is above you. I was sort of imagining that when he was describing describing water being above as uh, radiation protection. I thought that was a really good idea. Not bad having a habitat pet either, whether it's a, a cat or a dog, uh, not only just to have that that company, but something to take care of and that maybe there's some psychological improvement uh, for anyone that does have pets. Uh, you can definitely see the benefit of having something to care for in the habitat. So certainly a good suggestion. But what's great about hearing from Ross is his positive attitude, um, just taking... You know the, his approach to the halfway point, his approach to the mission, a lot of the things he was suggesting on 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 how to think and and what he's thinking of at this point in the mission, all just positive. And I think it's a reflection of really what everyone in the crew is feeling as well. Uh, no secret though that if you want to be an astronaut and be a part of this math, science, reading, language, uh, that round skill set seems to be a theme between Kelly and Ross so far. Okay, of course, as usual, we have two more crew members to hit, but before we do, we're going to first pause and take a moment to speak with Brian Crucian and Satish Mehta about the immunology and virology component of CHAPIA. Here we go. Brian and Satish, thank you so much for coming on Houston. We have a podcast. It's a pleasure to have both of you. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. Um, Now we're going to be talking about immunology and virology. Uh, But Brian, why don't we start with you? We've had you on five and a half years ago to talk about one of the hazards of human spaceflight. We talked very much from an immunology perspective. Can you talk about um, a little bit about yourself and a little bit about um, immunology and what you do? Well, Dr. Met and I are still here. Uh, (laughs) Been here a while, right? Still trying
4: to ascertain the the status of the immune system in the astronauts. And through a series of flight studies, we've published a lot of articles characterizing that, trying to figure out if that is a clinical risk for deep space missions. And that's been largely successful. And so we're now working towards countermeasures for deep space missions. Uh, How do we rectify the problem restore immune function, and protect the astronauts. And that gets into the basic function of CHAPIA as an analog and as a validation of a countermeasure.
0: Understood. Okay. Now, uh, Satish, you work very closely with uh, Brian, uh, and you have a history with virology specifically.
5: That's right. Brian and I, we have been working for the last, I would say, two and a half decades or maybe close to I have been here, you know, for more than three decades here at Johnson Space Center working virology part. So virology is a very important aspect. It actually is supposed to be a very good early biomarker of uh, looking at the immunity. So that is why, you know, immunology and virology, they are very closely related, you know, and that's what we have been doing, uh, you know, tracing uh, viruses, herpes viruses, uh, in astronauts for the last, you know, starting from, you know, shuttle days to ISS and then to space analogs and Chupia and whatnot, you know, we have been tracing those analogs and uh, space flight studies and looking at viruses, uh, which actually have a very direct connection with immunology. If you have a good immune system, you know, your viruses, you know, we all are infected with one or the other herpes viruses. There are eight human herpes viruses. And uh, all these herpes viruses, you know, they infect one or the other human being in a, during one time or the other in their lifetime. So we all have one or the other herpes viruses, but we do not get uh, sick. Mm. It's because, you know, our immune system is working very good in our favor. So that's what we have been doing uh, for the last so many years.
0: Okay. And this is where and 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 you've been doing it together, right? You guys yes. are, you said in virology and immunology, you guys have been working in some capacity to understand this exact relationship Satish, what's happening in the immune system, what's happening with the herpes and how they're related um in terms of virology and spaceflight. You would think naturally, right, as as me as a layman, that once you're in space as long as you do your proper quarantining and go up into space, you're not exposed to viruses, but you're saying that this may not be the case and so well, something we have to you know, that's a
5: very good question. You know, these viruses, it's not only these viruses coming from outside. We all have these viruses. When astronauts right. go up in space, you know, they carry these viruses up in space. Mm-hmm. Now it is the function of the immune system to keep these viruses under check. If their immune system is good, you know, and if the immune system is able to keep these viruses in the latent condition, in the, in the checked position, you know, where they do not cause a problem, they are fine. But unfortunately, that doesn't happen. So we all know for the last, you know, you know, 20, 30 years of studies in the immune system, we all know the immune system does change. It actually got, got the, uh, de- depressed. Uh, you know, maybe momentarily, but that is what, you know, when the immune system goes down, these viruses, you know, who had been under check of an intact immune system, these viruses flare up. They start to replicate more in number, and uh, that is a problem. So that is what we have seen in our earlier space flight studies, that immune system goes down, it actually dips down, and the viruses go up. But when they come down on the earth, you know this. As I said, it's a very transitory change. So immune system comes back, and the viruses again come back to their normal status. So that is how you know they are related. You know, uh, with one another, uh, very closely.
0: Yeah, and this helps. This is part of the reason why studying this for such a long time helps us to have such a better understanding. Brian, you know a lot. A lot of what Satish was mentioning is you know the spaceflight applications. So understanding and studying humans that actually fly to space on long duration missions, international space station missions. You also mentioned mentioned some analogs. So when you combine some of the our knowledge of working with astronauts and understanding some of these effects with the dip in um, it, uh, the immune system, only to come back upon uh, recovery back on Earth. Earth and studying that with astronauts and then also in analog missions. what is What do we know so far? What is the landscape of immunology as we know it today?
4: We can take a blood sample from you and pull the immune cells out of your blood and evaluate your immune status. Are those cells working right? Is there inflammation? Are they able to mount uh, a defense against a pathogen? And we have a variety of cell culture assays and microscopy assays. that answer that question But the virology is important because when we see diminished immunity we're not sure if that's really a clinical risk to you or not it can happen transiently anytime someone is stressed but when we see the latent viruses react at the same time that tells us that we've got a clinically relevant immune suppression and points us towards a need for countermeasures Hmm. and so that swings back to the analog question i have a variety of countermeasures i want to test They could be nutritional exercise, stress-relieving techniques. And so how do I test that? Well, the best place on Earth, pun intended, is a ground-based space analog to start because it's expensive to take something to flight, and it's nice to triage things on the ground before you take them to flight. Finding the best spaced analog is the relevant question. Head-down-tilt bed rest is great for bone and muscle loss, but it's not really good for immune because you don't really recreate those stressors associated with space flight the circadian issues, and all the things we think work to suppress the immune system. And so an analog like CHAPIA, where you put people in a high-fidelity simulated vehicle for a year-long duration, we think might be an attractive analog to test immune countermeasures.
0: So, when uh, let's dive into countermeasures for, for, for a minute, because you talked about, okay, we have some understanding, so what are the countermeasures that we can implement? With analogs that you've used in the past, um, in terms of looking at from virology and immunology, what are some of the considerations on what you think might be a good countermeasure to combating this dip in immune response?
4: Uh, That's another good question. And the good news for ISS astronauts is that some of the countermeasures we've already put on orbit have been effective at improving immune status. And we, there's some evidence to suggest that aerobic exercise, resistive exercise, increased durations and loads have been particularly effective. Construction-era crews, compared to more recent crews, we definitely see an improvement. The bad news for deep space missions is a lot of those countermeasures, as they're currently constituted, don't translate well to deep space where the habitable volume is less, there are power considerations, less frequent resupply, etc. So we need a countermeasure specific for deep space missions.
0: Hmm. That's perfect, yeah. And what you just talked about was Yeah, not only the countermeasures, but introducing a lot of those stressors, which are, I think, more unique to Chapia. Can you talk about, uh, Satish, we'll go to you, can you talk about when Chapia actually started coming into the conversation and you worked with Brian to say, hey, this is something we should be a part of, and let's start working and formulating what this experiment design is going to look like from an immunology and virology perspective?
5: You know, um, as Brian mentioned, there are a lot of uh, different uh, uh, analogs, And uh, the problem with every analog is, you know, so there is one or the other item missing, you know, which would mimic the space program or the space flight. So having a long duration like Chupia for one year, you know, it was a very attractive thing, you know. So they are in a close environment and they are getting exposed to all kinds of things, you know, as happens to astronauts during international space flight. Uh, so, that is that was a very attractive thing for us, you know, to test how the immune system would behave for that one year of duration with all the countermeasures, you know, being introduced. So, that is why, you know, we wanted to take a look at that, you know, how these subjects who are in Chapia would respond to the countermeasures, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that have been subjected to. And uh, again, you know, from looking at the virus point of view, you know, you need to make sure, you know, uh, this immune system is good enough to control those viruses, you know, which do not produce any problems later on in this stressful environment. So uh, I think one of the things we do need to... uh, um, mention over here is stress. You know, we have been talking a lot. You know, of these things, stress really plays a very important role. And we do in our immunology lab, we do measure uh, stress markers. Uh, so, so they are like you know stress hormones. So cortisol, DHEA, salivary amylase. Um, cytokines, you know, some of those things are very directly related, very much directly related to stress. Mm -hmm. And the way it works, you know, we actually have a model in the lab uh, that shows, you know, how stress controls um, the release of stress hormones through HPA, um, you know, and uh, sympathetic nervous system. And they produce these hormones, you know, to the larger quantity in an environment which is not normal. Right. You know, so like, you know, when we are sitting in a room and, you know, having a very common conversation that is a different, you know, for maybe an hour or two. But once you are there in a in a closed environment for a period of one year, things are not the same. Right. So that is how, you know, your hormones start to behave differently and they start to get produced in larger quantities Which would impact the immune system. You know, larger quantity of the stress hormones again, you know, suppress the immune system. And again, you know, as we just mentioned a minute ago, you know, suppressed immune system does let these viruses release, you know, in the system more and they start to replicate, they start to reproduce more and more. And that is how, you know, we actually try to connect these three things um, stress hormones, uh, viruses, and immune system.
0: Mm. Now, of course, for a ground-based analog, you talked about the benefits of Chipia. You can introduce quite a number of stressors into um, a ground-based analog, uh, but you, you know it's not. Ex- is, and that's a ground-based analog is getting very close to the real thing, right? Real deep space, um, real deep space flight, going on a mission to Mars, and the altered gravity fields and all of that. So, of course, when you're looking at an analog, you get most of the stressors, a lot of the stressors, but not all of the stressors. So when you're analyzing and coming up with uh, an interpretation of the data on, these are the stressors that are a part of this, but then trying to come up with the best model for what you predict would be as part of that actual space flight, when you have the entirety of the stressors. um, How do you properly analyze the data to come up with a good analysis of this is, the, this is the right mix of countermeasures that we think is going to work to help the immune system. So, in looking at possible ground analogs, the field
4: deployment ones, Antarctica, NEMO, are attractive because they're actual missions, but you have less control over them. There's so much from shipping to getting biosamples collected to how you're going to do your immediate processing that remains a challenge. Something like Chapia is right next to the laboratories. And you have much better control. And Dr. Douglas, the PI, has designed a study that can be be conducted in a very integrated fashion. You can look at all the different aspects of physiology, including immunology and virology, coordinate that with the diet the crews are receiving, the exercise loads, and you can look at all of this in concert, which really helps clinical interpretation of the Mm -hmm. results. Our ultimate customer is the NASA flight surgeon. This is the person that we're generating this data for who's ultimately responsible for caring for the deep space crews. And so we try and answer this question for them, and it will guide the medications they may use or may carry on these missions uh, and and how they'll ultimately care for the deep
0: space crew members. That is perfect. Yeah, I I never really thought about that. And I guess that's true for... A lot of, uh, but the flight surgeon is, and this is the benefit of Chapia, is not the ultimate customer for everybody, right? Of course, you have the food scientists that have to think about the right mix of um, what a food complement will look like. The nutritionists, right? Um, and, and, uh, but they're all going to inform um, it, what it needs to support. It sounds like it's the support folks for the astronauts uh, and the support folks for the mission from a human perspective. Yeah, no countermeasure acts
4: on one system. Right. All of these countermeasures are translational, and so we're working with the exercise people, the microbiology people, the nutrition laboratory, food to to look at the effects of each countermeasure broad scale on the entire on the entire organ system of the body.
0: I suppose if you were to look at just immunology and virology and di- and design something that uh, was very isolated you uh, into that narrow scope, it wouldn't. Give you the data that you want um, to have an integrated approach and to consider all the different factors gives you better data to work with um, because it's more representative of what the actual space flight is going to be.
5: Yeah, um, all analogs, as we just talked about, you know, they are different from one another. They have, I mean, one of the biggest thing which is missing in every analog on ground is the gravity, uh-huh. right? So whichever analog we we have or we try to use Antarctic actually had been uh, for many of our immune studies we have done, you know it has been very closely associated. It has been very closely related uh, with some of the data we have gotten in terms of immune uh, changes. Uh, but again, as you know Brian mentioned, you know we do not have that much control, you know uh, it's not only the sample shipping supplies and getting samples back. Even over there, you know, it's very difficult how to, how to have those subjects comply with the, with the requirements, you know, so they are very far off. So unlike that, you know, we have a little better control or a little better access, you know, to the subjects in Chupia, and uh, which analog works better for which studies, it's a very different thing. Sure. You know. Uh, viruses as, again, I'll bring back to you to viruses, it's a very sensitive indicator. It's a very sensitive indicator of changes in immunity. So what I mean is, uh, with a little bit of change in stress from normalcy, these viruses start to react and produce more in quantity. Hmm. Okay? So you know, it again depends upon what kind of stressors or what kind of analog we are looking at. Say, for example, bed rest, you know, we have done studies in bed rest. We have seen changes uh, and, uh, you know, the amount of viruses replicate or the load that gets replicated in bed rest studies is much less as compared to Antarctica study, you know, which is very far off, you know, you know, Uh, temperature is very harsh, you know, it's very, you know, different, but, you know, all those things, you know, again, you know, if we are able to detect any viruses, any herpes viruses going up in quantity, and uh, that is a very good indicator that, you know, there are changes in the immune system, even if they come back to normal, you know, once that that stressor is removed.
0: Right. Yeah, because you said the relationship is so tight that if you, see, if you see changes in the virology, it probably means the immune system has been suppressed. Yeah. And you said the sensitivity to stressor is, is a very close indicator, and it, and it is very sensitive. Um, and that's the, that's the interesting thing, I think, when it comes to a uh, uh, study like JAPIA and analog like JAPIA. What it sounds like is introducing the most representative stressors is that much more important for your fields. If you don't have the right stressors, you won't get as good data to understand what is happening to the immune system, you know?
4: Our work has shown that there's a continuum of stress and then immune compromise and then clinical disease. And you can line up all of these analogs and the different aspects of spaceflight, shuttle missions, construction air ISS, current ISS, on this continuum. And you can also put terrestrial situations. Med students taking exams, bereavement, mm-hmm. all fall on this continuum where at first you will be stressed, and we can detect that in by our, by our assays, stress hormones. Then there'll be some degree of immune compromise relating, resulting from the stress hormones. And if it persists, if the stress increases, eventually there'll be some immune compromise that results in latent virus reactivation that will at first be subclinical. And in extreme situations, that latent virus reactivation progresses to disease, and that's what shingles is.
0: Ah, really, it's that latent virus activating. Is that some of your work?
5: (laughs) Yeah, actually, you know, um, so, you know, when we started to do these viruses, looking at these viruses in space flight, it was a very strange question to be posed for astronauts in this space environment. As a matter of fact you know I actually was asked many a times why viruses what viruses have to do at NASA right right that
0: was my first question yeah
5: you're right <laughs> it's very it's 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 a very good question it's a very obvious question you know and we have looked at that you know again as I said for a long period of time we have seen that and it does so the first thing we wanted to see you know if these viruses even reactivate uh and just let me take you back for one minute you know not not giving a lecture on viruses, but in just maybe 30 seconds, these viruses are sitting in our body, in different parts of the body, in different cells of the body, uh, producing no problem, producing no harm. We all have these viruses and everyone is fine. So for example, you know, we all had chickenpox, you know, when we were little. Maybe, you know, if not chickenpox uh, directly, uh, you got a vaccine. So chickenpox is caused by one of these herpes viruses. It's very similar as Oster virus. So you have chickenpox at the age of maybe two months or three months, and you feel fine after a couple of weeks of little, you know, bad time. And now you're 50 years old, of age, 60 years, you know, during the in that time, you don't even remember that you ever had chickenpox until I just maybe mentioned to you, right? But your body always remembers that. That virus is always sitting in your body, it's in the dorsal root ganglion, it's in the spinal cord, it stays there for the rest of your life without causing any problem until a stressful event happens, Mm -hmm. until your immune system goes down, until any of these, you know, abrupt thing happens, you know, which is not normal. Uh, And when that thing happens, you know, the same virus which is sitting in your nerve for the last 50 years will reactivate, will wake up, start to reproduce more and more viruses, replicate, and travel through the same nerve and come out in the skin and produce shingles. Mm -hmm. And shingles, those who have had it, you know, can tell you it's not a fun disease. It's a very painful disease. It can happen in any part of your body through those, you know, dorsal root ganglions, you know. Uh, And uh, that is what we have, We were very much worried about that, you know, for astronauts. You know, that virus is there, you know, that virus, as I said, you know, these astronauts take that same virus, Varicella's Oster virus, in space when they go up in there. And in space, you know, the things change a lot. There is no gravity, you know, radiations are too high in um, uh, international space flight system, right? Uh, Food is different, the kind of environment they live in, stress is, is high, again, you know, how a person perceives stress is different, right? Uh, but all those things, you know, they affect these viruses. And uh, it can happen that viruses replicate to produce a symptom. And uh, that is what we have actually seen recently uh, in one of uh, our astronaut and the studies under review. And we don't want to reveal too many things, you know, until it comes out. Sure, but yeah, we have we out. have uh, seen that viruses producing clinical uh, conditions uh, in stressful environment with the immune system going going down again. You know that the triangle, you know, is always very important: stress hormones, immune system, and viruses. And viruses is the ultimate clinical uh, uh, outcome of changes in immunity and increase in stress hormones.
4: Yeah, and there are a number of different adverse clinical outcomes we're worried about related to immune compromise, but the virus question is particularly important because we all have them and we're carrying them with us to the moon and the planets beyond. You cannot screen these out with a pre-flight quarantine. It's one of the few things that that, uh, quarantine will not be effective against.
0: Because it's always with us, yeah. Yeah, as you guys are talking, you both seem like very calm individuals. I think you both um, you both understand the risk of a stressful environment. Meanwhile, you're talking about it could activate with a little bit of stress, and I'm over here getting all antsy, getting more stressed, and just trying to breathe because um, yeah, it's uh, it sounds like what you need is an environment that um, is conducive to reducing that stress. Which is um, interesting for Chapia, right? because chapia is introducing the different stressors. This is p- part of it as uh, and I wonder if, you know, one of the things you talked about in terms of stress for Chapia, and I wonder if this is related to your study in immunology and virology, is the length of the study, um, just over time. Is one of the things you're interested in to see if the stress increases over time as you can, as subjects continue to be in a a confined environment, and see if maybe you know if if there's a consistent stress over a long period of time, maybe towards the back end of a mission, as folks are trying to hoping you know heading towards the end. That I think is one of the is that one of the more interesting factors of CHAPIA from an immunology and virology perspective.
4: Yeah, the,
0: exactly. Okay.
4: The the duration is extremely important mm. because it is a safe laboratory environment, and the crews know that. And we need to stress them out to make it just as bad as it is for astronauts. And so how you do that is increasing the duration and increasing the fidelity. You want to make it look like a real vehicle, a mm-hmm. real planetary habitat introduce those communication delays and all those other little nuances that increase stress, as it does for the astronauts. But the duration is extremely important because there's a kinetics of adaptation to any environment. Mm. And if we were to sample astronauts a few days after launch, all we're really looking at is post-launch stress and adaptation. And so when we sample the astronauts, we want it to have been enough months into the uh, mission that we're looking at what we call space normal. We want to define how you're going to be in that months or years long duration to the moon or Mars. And so, same thing for Chipia. Uh, you, You want to increase the duration of the mission sufficient that you see how stress and immunity and all the other physiological adaptations settle out to into what is going to be normal in that environment. And that's what we want to measure. And then if it looks like flight, that's what we want to test a countermeasure
0: for.
5: Mm, okay,
0: all right, very good. And last question is um, related. Can I,
5: can I say something here? No, no, I'm getting <laughs> I just want to. I just want to add uh, the duration is so much important. You know, a long time ago when it was a space shuttle thing, only a couple of weeks. You know, astronauts go up and come down, yeah. and we saw these changes. And this was one of the understanding of uh, of people over here. Uh, at NASA that maybe, you know, they go up in space and it's like an acute change from normal environment to an abnormal space environment and then they come back, you know, all those changes we have seen or we had seen in the space shuttle studies, maybe, you know, after we have International Space Station, you know, when these astronauts go there for a longer period of time, they get acclimatized, you know, and all these changes will go away. Right. You know, so like, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you are given a shock of zero gravity, increased radiation, food is different, people you are interacting are different. So that actually is, is an acute change. But, you know, when the space shuttle uh, went away and uh, we started uh, studies for long duration space flight. Uh, which were few months, and you know, four, five, six, seven, eight months. You know, maybe that thing go away. It didn't go away. Mm-hmm. We actually saw more changes. As a matter of fact, you know, we have seen uh, worse change in immunology, immunology, as well as in virology. So you know, so 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 you know, as the duration, you know, even going to Mars. You know, all those things, you know, we actually have published these papers, you know, these, th- these changes or these problems do not go away. As we have longer duration, immunology is going to be something, you know, we still have to monitor, you know. And with immunology, you know, comes all paraphernalia of things like viruses and immunology-related diseases also. Mm. So I think it's very important to study immunology in the long duration studies, you know, whatever we can do. So CHAPIA actually contributes a very significant role in studying immunology and virology for a longer period of time and how these changes happen and how we can even control them with intervention of the countermeasures.
0: Hmm. I just found it interesting that um, you would, it, it didn't sound like it was initially apparent that the duration would be... An additional stressor. It sound like, I don't know if you were, if you're hy- hypothesizing no change or maybe that because the pace of a short duration mission was intense, that that is enough stress. And over time, maybe their workload would decrease and maybe you were hypothesizing that that would then I'll, decrease uh, stress. I'll add
5: one more thing here. You know, we did a study long time back in Antarctica. And uh, one of the uh, attractive thing of doing studies in Antarctica is or was... Uh, it's a long duration study, and uh, all these changes, as we have been talking for some time, we saw in Antarctica. But the interesting thing was, you know, close to the time when they were going into Antarctica, going into winter and coming out of winter was very interesting. That is where we saw the biggest change in viruses. You know, when they go into Antarctica, when they go into winter over, you know, so these viruses, they really flare up in larger quantity. Mm-hmm. And when they are close to be coming out, you know, so they started to feel a little bit maybe less stressed or maybe less worried. Okay, now there's only one week left, two weeks left. And we, we we started to see less changes there. Ah. So we have published relieved. those kinds of study, you know. So we are, you know, it all is related with how you perceive stress, how you, how your mind thinks about, you know, a good thing is coming in, so we don't need to worry about that, you know. So viruses also start settling down.
4: Yeah. We published a case study of an ISS astronaut that had dermatitis issues related to the immune and viral problem. Hmm. And we were able to line up disease flares with... Dockings, undockings, circadian shifts, uh, other significant mission stressors, and it basically correlated, meaning that stress is a granular thing. Spaceflight is a chronic stress with overlaid acute stressors that occur, and and that's where we see our issues. And information like that can help them, mission planners, design the missions to be less stressful and reduce
0: clinical risks. And whether it's a winter over in Antarctica or whether it's an ISS mission, the length of time helps you to find those acute moments. Um, Excellent. Excellent. All right. Last question is on, um, is on just having this, this particular analog study, CHAPIA. We're talking about the benefits of this, the length of time. Uh, but I'm sure you like many others, uh, are working with this subject of four, uh, but it's a relatively small sample size. So the benefit of repeating a study like this, so you get more and more samples from your perspective, is that something that you're looking forward to?
4: Very much looking forward to that. Yeah. And and the reason is, obviously, you want to increase the sample size. Mm-hmm. Eight subjects is more meaningful than four. Twelve is more meaningful yet. But also, we've learned from our Antarctica work, each mission can be different in terms of the personalities of the crew, how they handle and react to stress, and, and the types of relationships that they form as they problem-solve together during the mission. And so the missions can be very different, and so multiple missions is extremely important. For interpreting the the science findings,
0: wonderful. And you are not def- definitely not the only scientists and researchers looking forward to <laughs> continued research. Um, it's a, it's a wonderful study, and I enjoy talking with folks like yourself to really dive into how integrated and and important a study like this is. So, Brian and Satish, thank you so much for coming on Houston Radio Podcast. Absolutely fascinating just to learn about the worlds that you're in and how how incredibly interesting it is and holistic and how it contributes to the our overall understanding of deep space missions thank you for taking the time
5: well that's great you know i mean you can see you know we are all excited yeah. we are very passionate about what we do you know once we start talking about our stories you know they never end <laughs> i was locked in it was awesome
4: thank heaven we have this wonderful analog for science purposes and thanks for having us
5: absolutely yeah thank you
0: All right, uh, that was a great conversation with Brian and Satish. Two more audio logs to go. Let's first start with medical officer Nathan Jones.
1: Hello, my name is Nate Jones. I'm the medical officer for Chappia Mission One. Since we last checked in, we celebrated New Year's Eve, which was also the halfway point of the mission. This month, we celebrated Mission Day 200. Those were probably the highlights for us. Unfortunately, all the real fun places to celebrate the new year on Mars were all booked up, so instead of going out, we stayed in and ate a special meal. We also watched a movie together to celebrate the new year, and I think three out of the four of us actually fell asleep during the movie, so we decided to celebrate the new year a little ahead of Houston. We ended up putting on cone hats and took a few moments to commemorate the new year as a crew. We called it a night not too long after that. And for Day 200, it was basically any other day in the HAB other than the fact that we had a small celebration at the end of the day. Regarding things on Earth that we would want to be given priority for development on Mars, we had an interesting discussion the other day around that exact question. And it was sort of, at what point would you want to start putting other types of uh, buildings on Mars? For instance, when do you put in a building solely for recreation? When do you think it would be a good idea to put in places to shop? There are things that I think probably ought to come first. For one, I know I miss being out in nature. So I think in order to help prevent people from being homesick, it would be important to find ways to recreate a lot of the feeling uh, of being in nature. Astronauts, I've often heard... uh, Quoted as saying they missed the wind and the smells of Earth. And so I think it would be possible to recreate a lot of the uh, sensory of being in nature on Mars. And uh, so that's something I think we should do. For instance, you could start with virtual reality, but I think it'd be a good idea to uh, develop something that feels like grass, maybe actually grow grass there, or have sand that you can have in your toes, a varying breeze. The smell of uh, dirt, plants, dew, Um, and then one that I think would be big for me is the feeling of radiant heat on the skin, and I don't think that would be too hard to replicate. I was also asked if uh, the Chipia mission would influence how I interact with people at work after the mission. I've actually been reading a lot of books on leadership, and so I hope to take a lot of those uh, lessons and skills back with me to Earth. I also think that the soft skills such as better communication will be helpful in the ER as well. Another question I was asked is uh, what suggestions I might have for courses for students to take in high school. I think students should focus on whatever interests them most. If you focus on things that uh, you can pursue with passion, the work you do will just be that much better. Yes, scientists will... Uh, still be needed in the future. We're going to need all the STEM professions for sure. But I think the moon and Mars will also need people like artists. There's no way someone is going to make it on the moon for 378 days without books, music, and entertainment. So find what you're passionate about and pursue it and find ways to apply it. What's coming up in the next month? Well, first thing that I can think of is Groundhog Day. We actually watched the movie at one point and joked that it sometimes feels like Groundhog Day in the hab. Uh, We're going to also hit the three-fifths point of the mission next month, and so we've got another milestone already coming up. After that, we uh, get to see how Valentine's Day goes whenever you're 250 million miles away from your significant other. I know I prepared something uh, for my wife at home, and I'm hoping it works out better than my anniversary plans worked out. But we'll see. That's it for now. I hope you all enjoy the update.
0: All right, again, that was Medical Officer Nathan Jones. Really appreciated his uh, dry sense of humor in this one. Uh, I locked into his description of things. uh, You know, one of the first elements to bring to improve the habitat, he was approaching it from a very futuristic perspective of Mars with shopping and recreation. Uh, So he was really thinking about the holistic view. You know, if we had everything, what would probably be the first thing we would want? Matching Ross's theme of nature, Uh, but not. But also, I guess, not just from the perspective of. Missing nature or wanting to be in nature, but really those sensory elements, the feel of the grass, the smell of the dew. Very interesting to hear some of the things that are missed as they're uh, in the habitat. Uh, Groundhog Day seems to be a pretty funny reference as well. Uh, Kelly mentioned it in her audio log, just having the repetitive tasks. But it is true that being on Mars, uh, there's going to be a lot of those same tasks that are necessary for day-to-day life. So I'm glad that they're embracing it with a dry sense of humor and still getting along great as a crew. All right. Last but not least, here's Science Officer Anka Solariu.
6: Hello, Earthlings. I am Anka Solariu, Science Officer of Chapia Mission 1. You're asking, how is everything going? Well, overall, the mission is going very well, and we are collecting massive amounts of data. I feel that time goes by very fast, especially now that we pass the halfway point. There's always a lot to do and a lot to learn across self assigned tasks and mission control assigned activities. So it is very hard for me to ever get bored. In fact, I don't think that has ever happened to me here. Besides, interacting with the other crew members is always a source of interesting knowledge and fresh perspective and quite a lot of entertainment. Some of the highlights of the task of, the, of last month. Well, we enter the new year in great spirits because now we are in the year we get to see our friends and family again. But we spent a great portion of the past month simulating communication blackout, which is a critical scenario to train for when preparing to live on Mars, especially during its conjunction with the sun or losing communications for any other reason. Humans have not yet experienced complete loss of communication with human space travelers for days at a time or even weeks. And for ground control, even minutes probably feel like an eternity. For Mars missions, both astronauts and mission control have no choice but to be comfortable with periodic loss of communication. So this is an extremely uh, interesting experience for me. Now that we're halfway through, what do I miss most about Earth? Well, what took me by surprise was how much I miss Earth life, its sounds, its colors. It's almost a visceral sensation, much like a phantom limb syndrome. I really never thought that this was possible. I miss the greenery. I miss seeing an insect petting a cat, hearing a bird. I miss the colorful sky of Earth, its ever-changing weather. I miss the nearly infinite library of Earth's nature smells. So for me, what is important and possible to develop from Mars, of course, it is important to ensure the safety and cover the long-term basic survival needs for humans, but knowing what I know now, I don't think that I would want to travel that far without our fellow earthlings from other species, and I believe focusing on robust life support systems from, for the non-human crew, like crops and hydroponics, is well worth the effort. Do I think living in Chapia will influence the way I interact with people in my work or next job? Well, I think Chapia will always influence everything in my life from now on, personally and professionally. Here on Mars, Dune Alpha, you get to experience human interaction dynamics in a controlled environment. And you realize that even when presented with the same objective reality, everyone processes it and responds to it slightly differently. This way, we complement each other's experience while still united under the same vision and pursuing the same mission objectives. This diversity of skill, experience, and perspective, as well as respect and openness to each other's input, is really what constitutes the strength of our team, and the same is true for society at large. For the Artemis generation, my suggestion for courses that students should take in high school That's a very interesting question. I think students should take the full advantage of anything they're offered and pursue everything that they're passionate about. They should truly cherish the diversity of knowledge they're exposed to in high school because they may not have that opportunity again. There's nothing one learns that is superfluous. Everything, sciences and humanities alike, can prepare young human brains for the complexity of our rapidly changing world. Of course, it is critical to build a solid science foundation and be able to use the clean language of mathematics to describe the natural world so elegantly as we have. It is ideal to understand how living and non-living systems are built and evolve, but it is also important to understand how your own brain works as you navigate the mysteries surrounding our existence and how to keep an open and curious mind. How to accept and live with uncertainties and navigate with imperfect tru- tools while trusting others and trying to make the best decisions as you move along what is coming up in the next month well we anticipate several new evas and i always enjoy being out on the martian surface Also, we should have a few more drone and rover missions and uh, collect more geology samples and study them and hopefully successfully germinate a new type of plant in the Martian soil simulant. So uh, we'll keep you up to speed. And in the meantime, stay positive and continue dreaming of of Mars. And thank you for all of your support. I used to go ahead. Stop of the space shuttle. Zero-G and I feel fine. The shuttle has cleared the dock. Became a safe for all mankind. Actually, a huge honor to break our
0: eggs like this. Not because
4: they are easy, but because they are hard. Never used Welcome to space.
0: Again, that was science officer Anka Solaryu. Uh, a theme, I guess, across all of the crew members. They all uh, have this sense of missing Earth and some of the features that it has. Uh, Anka focusing mostly on life and people um, and an appreciation for, um, you know, everything the earth has to offer. So I feel like when designing a habitat, something for uh, for future habitat designers of, of Martian uh, shelters will probably have some level of influence from the Chipia crew uh, considering how to bring earth, how to bring earth elements uh, into um, into the habitat. You know, I thought, Anka had some beautiful words about learning a lot. And I think it's true, not just in their words, but in their actions, Um, even ahead of the mission, uh, we were learning about some of the things that they were bringing, some of the things that they were looking forward to doing, not only to support the mission, but really in their free time. Uh, and all of them have a sense of continued learning, whether it be reading or uh, studying a new thing, learning a la- new language or a new skill like guitar. Um, a lot of them approach this mission with an opportunity to continue to learn. And I think uh, as we hear from all of the crew members on how to be a crew member and how to pursue something that you love, uh, including in math and science, I think that lifelong passion for learning is something that is also necessary for anyone that wants to go into this field. Well that's it for audio log number seven from Dune Alpha. Thanks for sticking around. I hope you're enjoying the crew's journey. This is the seventh audio log in our series. Tune in once a month to check in with the crew. Maybe you're inspired by the crew and would like to be a part of an analog like this. If you're interested and think you have what it takes to take on a year-long challenge and contribute to our understanding of what it will take to support human missions to Mars, applications for the next mission, Chapea Mission 2, are open. Head to chapea.nasa.gov, that is C-H-A-P-E-A.nasa.gov, to fill out an application and become a Mars Analog Crew Member. Applications are due by April 2nd, 2024. Check out nasa.gov for the latest happening across the agency, and you can check out us and many of the other NASA podcasts at nasa.gov podcasts. If you want to talk to us on social media, we're on the NASA Johnson Space Center pages of Facebook X and Instagram. You can use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform to submit an idea for the show. Just make sure to mention it's for us at Houston. We have a podcast. Recordings were sent in from the Chapia crew through January, and we had the conversation with Brian and Satish on February 2nd, 2024. Thanks to Will Flato, Dane Turner, Abby Graff, Jane Jennings, Dominique Crespo, and Anna Schneider. Thanks to Brian Crucian and Satish Mehta for taking the time to come on the show. Thanks to Grace Douglas and Jennifer Miller for their efforts in reviewing these audio log episodes. And big thanks to Kelly Haston, Ross Brockwell, Nathan Jones, and Anka Solariu for sharing their experience for this audience on Houston We Have a Podcast. Give us a rating and feedback on whatever platform you're listening to us on, and tell us what you think of our podcast. We'll be back next week.